Hey, are you ready to demonstrate your organization's commitment to data protection and government? And I mean your company, not just you. Boost Brand Trust with AI certification, incorporating principles from industry standards like NIST and the OECD. And you can navigate all of those privacy regulations confidently with TrustArc's robust AI governance solutions. Get a trustee certified privacy seal for your company, signifying organization's commitment to responsible data practices. With trustees' proven methodology over years, you can achieve compliance with AI laws around the world and also enhance your general privacy posture. Secure your brand's competitive advantage with a trusted seal now. Get AI certified today. Visit trustart.com slash AI dash certified. That's trustart.com slash AI dash certified. You're listening to Serious Privacy by Trustart. Please welcome our hosts, Paul Breitbart and Kay Royal. Data, data everywhere, and all the boards did shrink. Data, data everywhere, nor any drop to drink. It's not quite a really good translation of the albatross, but data everywhere truly is an apt description of our current society. Not only the prevalence of data, but the entities who are founded on selling data or even those who have data, personal data, for other purposes, but they choose to sell it or lease it or trade it to another entity for income or another benefit, which might fall under the CCPA. Today's episode with Jeff Jockish, CEO of Privacy Plan, will look at this issue of selling data. However, we're also going to discuss podcasts because that's how he and I met. Unfortunately, I'm not a good channeler of Paul Breitbart, my typical co-host, but we are joined by my guest co-host. You've met him before and we all love him, Ralph O'Brien. Hello and welcome to Serious Privacy. My name is Kay Royal. And I'm Ralph O'Brien. And welcome to Serious Privacy. And Jeff. And I'm Jeff Jokish of Privacy Plan. Thank you. So today's unexpected question, let's see. Oh, there you go. If you're at a place and you order a drink to go and you have to get the small, the medium or the large, what size do you go for? Mm, I think I'm probably medium. I don't want the the super, super gold. <laughs> well, Ralph. everything in excess. But that being said, our... Grande is probably the size of your tiny, isn't it? So uh, everything's smaller over here. <laughs> I was going to say, the American to the British sizes probably <laughs> yeah, comes yeah. into play here, Very right? Much so. Very much so. And I always get the tiny ones. and uh, But the one they brought me today was was large, but I always get the small ones. I don't know why I, I do. So thank you very much. Let's dive back into Jeff. So Jeff, you and I met because on LinkedIn, you always post your favorite three podcasts for the week. I've never really been a podcast person before I started, but now I pay attention. How did you start getting into listening to podcasts? I mean, where'd that come from? So I didn't really listen to podcasts much uh, until I started studying privacy. And in order to to pass my CIPP US, I, I decided for sort of an immersion strategy. And so in addition to to reading the book and the text, you know, Peter Swire's book. I started to listen to a lot of audiobooks and, and a lot of podcasts. Oh, nice. And yeah. 
And, and I'm a person who makes not only lists, but I make databases, right? And so I started making a database of podcasts for my, for my own use, right? So that I, now, well, I started it actually over the summer, actually early. So just recently. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I wasn't publishing any of it, right? I actually didn't publish it, I think, until maybe November uh, when I realized maybe somebody else would be interested in it. Oh, how fascinating. Yeah. And then nobody really, well, I guess they did sort of pay a little bit of attention. I published it onto the IAPP listserv, okay. right, where people were asking questions. Somebody said, hey, you know, what's, what's a, good, a, a good privacy podcast? And I'm like, well, I've got this big database. Maybe people would be interested. So I published it there and it got like 500 views. Oh, my goodness. So, uh, so I said, well, maybe I should do some more of this, right? And so I, I started getting a little bit more serious about it. We like people who are serious about privacy. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. So let's get serious. So then I, I did it more and I, I, I built it out a little bit more and I started doing these sort of weekly lists of what was interesting. And then I decided to start ranking them. And, you know, when I started doing the ranking, then people said, wow, this is this is big time. Right. And so that's when then it really sort of took off. So, Jeff, what's your criteria for ranking a podcast? What makes a podcast good? What makes a podcast bad? Well, so it's actually pretty complicated, right? I've actually got an algorithm. Oh, wow. Oh. So, yeah. So the algorithm has about five different components. Let me see if I can actually uh, pull that up, right? So what This I, is fascinating, seriously. Yeah. So so first of all, when I, when I look at each of the podcasts, right, I I actually tag them. So I've got a taxonomy that sort of gives me sort of different things that the podcasts focus on, right? And so all the podcasts don't necessarily have a strict data privacy right. focus, right? Some of them focus also on cybersecurity. Some of them focus on, you know, data governance. Some of them focus on, you know, just a variety of different things. So I try to tag them so that people can figure out what, are the, what exactly do they want to, to, to view, right? Or listen to, right? Some focus on e-governance, sorry, e-discovery, right? Some focus on and the data economy, right? All these things I'm interested in, but you might not be interested. So I tag them up, right? And then I sort of give them a ranking based upon how pure is their data privacy focus, right? And so that's sort of like a one to five points, right? And then I give them another uh, couple of points, up to three points based upon how many episodes they've actually put out, sort of the longevity value, right? And then I give them another, uh, a little bit of points. Actually, it's more of a detraction here based upon their recency, right? So if they're not putting out episodes anymore, maybe it's sort of uh, a podcast that's sort of gone silent, right? I might take points away. Okay, so that's why us and Privacy Please and Data Diva may run together with you because I know Privacy Please and we started about right at the same time. I think I was on one of their first episodes. I don't remember when Debbie started hers. And yes, I know I'm sending my listeners over to other podcasts, but there's enough privacy to go around for all. But what about podcasts? What about the ones like I just recorded one called Is That Even Legal? Someone else's podcast. They do not focus on privacy, but they invited me on to talk about privacy for Is That Even Legal? The things you can do in privacy. So do you pay attention to general podcasts, if they have one episode that's on privacy or those don't hit your radar because why bother? It's not going to really hit your 
your rating system? I actually do pay attention. It's a little bit harder for me to track because I don't always know that they're there, but I have actually started tracking them. I've actually got a whole separate tab on the the database where I have sort of like one-off episodes. Nice. So I will actually list that episode if I know about okay. it, right? Not that I threw that out there with any specificity so people could go find it. Yeah. 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 And if people wanted to find your work, Jeff, where would they find it? So you can actually go to uh, bit.ly slash privacy podcast list. One, And we'll make sure that we provide that also in the resources so people have that. But I just think it's fascinating because, yeah. I mean, I'm sorry. There's just so much going around in my head right now. And I know everyone listening is like, come on, Kay. Okay, here's the question I was going to ask. Do I get points taken away for every time I say I love something? <laughs> I think no. I think passion <laughs> good, is good, why good. we all listen to you, Kay, right? Passion is uh, is what we all have. And if I was doing a podcast, it'd be passionate about <laughs> privacy or privacy passion, right? So, so Jeff, I mean, yeah. do you even grade the presenters? Do you, how animated the presenter is a factor? Oh, Ralph wants to know if we're going to get detracted from him being on here. That's what it is. Well, part of, part of the, the ranking formula is sort of a bonus plus or minus that, that I add. There can be some, some ups or downs based upon my personal preference, right? And so the, the overall ranking number I do note is, is, is my ranking, right? It is based upon some of these sort of some basic numbers, but then I throw in my, my two cents. So. Your mileage may vary, right? <laughs> so fair enough. Exactly. Fair enough. Oh, I do love that. I do love it. Now, do you turn this same type of dedication to other areas like books or movies or anything? I do. Yeah. In fact, I sort of changed the, the focus of the privacy plan, the small company that I run, to really focusing just on privacy related data sets, right? So we're talking about podcasts, but I actually do a variety of different data sets, right? You may have seen that I actually did a post recently on LinkedIn where I'm now tracking biometric identifiers. I did see that. I realized that as a privacy professional, I didn't really understand what biometric identifiers were out there. Mm -hmm. And so I started doing some research. And I actually found 37 different biometric identifiers, you know, in addition to things like facial recognition and, you know, iris scans and handprints and fingerprints and things like that. I was like, wow, there's a lot of stuff we need to be paying attention to. Right. So this is going down the Mission Impossible line where we're looking at the gait that someone walks and different things. Yeah. I mean, gait recognition is, is crazy, right? In fact, there's a brand new one I haven't even put onto the list yet that I found out about yesterday when I was listening to the Future Privacy Forums cast that they did yesterday, right? They had the the list of important privacy papers, and one of them was about VR, right, and uh, and privacy, right? And this researcher has found, essentially, that there's a whole new type of data exhaust, essentially, that we give off in VR, where there's essentially a behavioral biometric that happens when some sort of stimulus, right, is in this sort of VR environment, and we respond to that. Interesting. Some sort of cue comes up, a scary moment, right? And our response to that, right, is a biometric thing. You mean screaming like a little girl. Could be, right? <laughs> right? So what is your response to that stimulus? That's biometric 
You mean the, the, the difference between fear and excitement or a combination of the two? And, and, and so, I mean, I'm, I'm a big standards guy. I, I managed to sit on a number of international standards committees. And so I'm a big fan of standardization and finding common ground across the globe. So is your goal then, Jeff, to be the taxonomy guy? Is your, is your goal, Jeff, to be the guy who care, you can go to to standardize data sets within the privacy yeah, community? Actually, yeah, actually, like I'd like to really goal? do that. I mean, I don't think I'm going to necessarily be the guy. No, it's fascinating. But I want to contribute there. That is right? fascinating. And just to rewind, just to just a little bit, Jeff, you know, you, we've kind of had your evolution from doing your SIP US last summer to, to moving through to being these taxonomies and applying the way. But the one thing we didn't cover, just to rewind a little bit, is why privacy in the first place? What attracted you to it? Why privacy plan? Why, why the SIP US last summer? You know, what, what was your calling? You know, I've, your calling? I've really had, I don't know, I guess an evolution in my career, right? I'm a Cornell grad, right? And I actually studied industrial and labor relations, but I never really applied that, at least directly in my career. I really sort of started out as an entrepreneur and did sort of a lot of different things, but I was, a, I was not a sort of an internet entrepreneur from early on. I sort of been in tech startups really since the, eh, before the internet was really a thing. In fact, Sort of the internet stole the thunder from the first business that I started, <laughs> which was doing multimedia authoring, right? And oh wow, yeah, we were—it's killed as much as it's created in a way, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah right. right. I mean, we were doing we were doing multimedia authoring that was sort of you know the basics of that really was we were allowing people to to leave their assets distributed across the land, right? A local area network, right? So we were really sort of creating HTML before HTML was a thing, right? right. But the internet came out right, and HTML was much better than the stuff that we were creating. So I sort of pride myself on the fact that I was sort of the head of the wave, but right, doesn't get you very far, right? No. I guess in around 2008, I ended up in a, in a startup called ChaCha, which was a text-based search engine, right? And I started to sort of encounter privacy there with COPA and can spam laws, where I was the, right. I was the director of ChaCha, the director of content for ChaCha. It's funny how a lot of people don't consider the uh, can spam laws to be privacy. And I've had to explain to people it's it's basically the most basic form of privacy, the ability to be contacted or not. Yeah, right. Absolutely. It's very similar in Europe as well with, with the difference between like the GDPR and e-privacy laws, you know, and, you know, most right. people forget about the e-privacy laws. But I think sometimes they're more fundamental to people's day to day life than, than you know, perhaps the GDPR is, right? Yeah, more basic than yes, you can talk to me or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, leave me alone. Don't touch me. <laughs> we interrupted your story, Jeff. But- yes, go ahead. No, no, absolutely right. I, I encountered privacy there, but I didn't really, I guess, understand it a whole lot. Right? I mean, I was really just in that environment, and I understood that we couldn't really, you know, do things, you know, with the information of kids that were under thirteen. But you know, that was really sort of the the end of it in terms of COVID, right? right? We did a lot of messaging and we had to be careful with that. But, you know, that was sort of just the introduction of, of, to me, to privacy. But in terms of my background and why taxonomy is of interest to me, right? Because ChaCha was a search engine, right? What we were doing is people would text us a question. We would text them back an answer, right? And that sounds sort of lame. Back then, that was cutting edge. Yeah, I remember it. Yeah. 
Yeah, right. I mean, this is before everybody understood that Google was like, you know, how how we do information, right? And particularly kids and teenagers, right, thought that this was a pretty cool mechanism. I'm thinking, why does this and, sound so familiar? Well, lots of kids use this, right? I mean, every kid on the planet probably knew about Baba Chacha, right? We actually answered When questions. was this? Give, give me the time frame. Yeah, it was like 2008 to 2015, right? So what did you do in appropriate wow. questions? Because I can imagine, let's just say what people can type into a search engine is uh, a fairly open subject. So I have to ask, I have to ask, what proportion of that was genuine query and what proportion of that were people trying out the service? <laughs> <laughs> I'd say probably 10 or 15%. There is no yeah. technology that can survive yeah, the sure. human condition, let's face it, right? They're, they're, they're. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, the great part was, is that, you know, they'd ask an inappropriate question and then they'd actually ask a real question. Right. So it's right? like leading them down to thing. Oh, my goodness. That is. OK, so that has to segue us into because I can, of course, change our entrance since I completely forgot to record. But also you deal. Does this segue into how you are tracking and um, assessing data broke? Well, sure. Right. But before we segue, there, right. Right. Yeah, well, no, but I mean, in order for us to be able to answer those kinds of, you know, 4 billion questions, right? Originally, we had, you know, sort of people would ask, they'd send us a question, we'd send that to what we call the guide, right? And they would search the internet, find the answer, we'd text it back, right? Well, that doesn't scale, right? You have to actually create databases in order to be able to right. answer this, right? And you have to create systems, right? To be able to figure out what's the topic of the question to send it to the right person, right? And you have to be able to, you know, create all of those knowledge base. You know, have to create graphs. You have to do all this stuff. You have to understand taxonomy, right? right? We we created Bayesian, you know, classifiers to you know to do all of this stuff. We had to create, you know, all kinds of structure, right? So, in learning all that data science, right, and doing all that data science, right, that's why I create lists and data structures now, right? That's the way I think, right? So when I got into privacy, you know, several years later, right, that's the way I think about data privacy, right? So I just start building data structures. So when I read Peter Swire's book for the CIPP US, I started putting it into data nice. groups, right? I've got data sets of all the data laws. I've got data sets of all the legislation. I've got data sets of, you know, every aspect of data privacy that I, that I know about, right? And I keep, I keep doing that, right? Because I think about it in terms of like, how am I going to answer that question? Right. If somebody asks you tweet, sort of do things it. a different way. My, my personal one is I'm a graphical person. I'm a visual person. So if I can't put it in a diagram, if I can't draw a little flow chart, you know, then it just doesn't get settled in my head. I tend to remember the pictures rather than blocks of text. So I was, I was looking at a, a person the other day who actually turned the GDPR into a series of diagrams and flow charts and had public, published a book. And I thought that was a fantastic yeah. piece of work. I'll have to, again, put the link in, get the link for, 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 for any regular yes, viewers. Yes, please do. But, but yeah, I, I kind of love that approach. So you're, you're then trying to then moving that at scale into the data broking market. In fact, Kay and I were only talking last week on the podcast. That yeah. It's really interesting when you talk about privacy for the rich and privacy for the poor and people who can invest in protecting their data. And this is why you know we, we see these campaigns yeah. around own your own data protect your own data, which is a very different from the EU model of a fundamental right. So how does your model, Jeff, kind of take that all into account? I took 
all the data broker information I could find, right? So I went to the California Registry of Data Brokers, went to the Vermont Registry of Data Brokers. I did all the research I could find, you know, the FTC's report on data brokers back in right. 2014. There was also forgetting one of the organizations, one of the nonprofits has a list of data brokers up on their website. I think it hasn't been updated in a few years. Took all that information, essentially scraped it, right? Put it into my own database and it came up with something like maybe 600 data brokers, right? Then I expanded all that information, actually went to data brokers and got the information on all those companies, right? So to essentially expand out that information. And it wasn't enough. So then I started saying, okay, well, what other data brokers are there that that aren't calling themselves data brokers right. that, that don't exist, right? So what are all the ad tech companies that we know about? Uh, what are the big social media platforms that you know are essentially very large online providers? That's that, a hell of a list. That I would consider That's data a hell brokers. Of a- <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And, and I just you know what are the, who are all the location data providers? Who are all these kinds? Of, right. And essentially started building it out. Right now. I've got a list of over, I think it's 1,450 companies. Wow. Right? And it's got sort of a massive amount of uh, data. So the sort of the types of data I've got, right? So I've got entity data, right? The different entities. I've got keywords that sort of describe each of them. I think it's probably about 50 different keywords and tags, right? I know sort of what size they are, how many employees they have, performance indicators, right? I've got classification information, right? The way I sort of classify them, this is sort of unique, right? So the FTC, when they did their report back in 2014, sort of defined things into sort of three different categories, right? There was either sort of uh, people search, right? There was sort of risk assessment, and there was, I forget exactly what they called it, but essentially a sort of marketing, right? So there were yeah, there were marketers, there were risk assessors, and there were people search. I, I've, I've changed that a little bit, and I've got four categories, right? So there's people searchers, there are screeners, right? There are targeters, and there are monetizers. Ooh. And those are the four classifiers that I put in, right? You, you add the monetizers because those are the people that aren't directly selling information. They're renting Right, it. which is where my interest, I can't say my interest, but where it really piques my interest is because a lot of companies don't sell data. They lease it. And there's a huge social media company that is under FTC oversight right now that is restricted from, are they restricted from buying or restricted from selling? I'm not sure which. So instead they go the leasing route. And that's how they're getting yeah. around their their settlement terms are the fact that they're not buying or selling, they're leasing or renting. And you sit there and you go, but how do you, lease data. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. I, I'm baffled. I'm, I'm seriously baffled by that. How do, you, how do you lease data? I get it. You say, okay, you can lease this for one month. Maybe it's an active data set that someone's working on and they're updating. And so it's up to minute. Maybe you lease access to it. But to me, that just sounds like a play on words. I'm not really sure that's a thing. Yeah, I would tend to agree. It's one of the things that I find fascinating that, for example, in the EU of EU law, we, we have a fundamental rights-based law, and we actually don't associate IPR or intellectual property mm-hmm. or copyright law with data privacy law or data protection law, because, you know, I, I find the value in data is of, for someone's hopes and dreams and loves and hates and desires, 
rather than, oh, well, your email's worth not one pence and your location's worth 0.00. Right. You know, I, 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 I think the value is, le- is more intangible than that. And then, you know, added to that, you know, if, if you create two data sets, if, you've, you know, you, if you hit the copy button, is that data halved because is the value halved because you know you can make multiple copies of it? Has it doubled because now you, yeah exactly or is it multiplied? I've never been able to find answers to those questions. What I do know is we're now entering into a really opaque industry. So Jeff, you know, for me, I, you know, I want to you know say personal thanks to you because anything that can throw light on that industry to me is it's fascinating. So have right. you found them opaque? Have you found it difficult to find the answers to your question to to, to sort of make sure that you know where those flows of data move across those entities or 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 have you found it an easy process no i think it's hard i think it's really hard because most of them won't own up to being a data broker right i mean who me they're not registering (laughs) right right i mean there are more and more of them that are registering but they're for every one that registers there's three that aren't registering right and so i think that's a real problem and and part of it i think is that the that they even know that they're a data broker, right? right? Because I don't think we really know how to define it, right? If you if you look at the definitions of what's a data broker, I don't think we even agree on what a data broker so is. So it could be that they're either got someone smart enough looking at the definition and they're arguing with the 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 use of the word as to how they're described, or they have no one that's able to look at the definition and they're just going off wild. Yeah, yeah. That could be. That could yeah. be. I will say that I I can resonate a little bit with putting some structure. Y'all were talking about how you define things and how you visualize them. Okay, I go by the chaos theory. Let's just be honest. If I could throw it on a post-it note and toss it around my room somewhere, then yeah, that's my my organization stream here. But one thing that I really do track is the definition of sensitive information. And so I love to track that. And funny enough, Dan Solov shared with me one time, he doesn't believe in defining data as sensitive data. He believes all data should be protected equally. I'm not, I love Dan. He's like preeminent of my privacy heroes that I have, but I disagree because I do believe there is some data that is inherently more precious and more private to us than some other data. Just seriously look at the fact that if your name is out there, it's public. But the fact that you might be a 52-year-old white female born in Mississippi, that might be more private. But the definition of sensitive data across the world is varies. I mean, it varies greatly. And I love the one, I think it's Israel or India that defines personality as sensitive data. And so even if you just take that one example of how it's different around the world, And then you turn it into something more detailed, like what you're tracking. I mean, are you just tracking data brokers in the United States? That was a long way of getting around to my question. Are you just tracking data brokers in the United States or are you looking at them on a global level? So it was originally more U.S. centric, Uh but now I'm now it's not. Now I'm 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 going wider because I imagine that the how you define what a data broker is, as you say, some companies don't even own up to being data brokers and maybe they don't know it. If you take that and you look at the complexity of selling data, leasing data, who's a data broker globally, that's got to make your tracking efforts exponentially more complex. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I thought I was actually, you know, had a pretty good snapshot. Uh You know, a few months back, and then I realized that no, it's, it's not even close yet. 
<laughs> I mean, I think I've got a good uh, a good take on on the top level, right? right? But you know, there's actually a, a company that does a market scan for the data broker industry, right? And I think they sell this this data broker report for like thirty thousand dollars a pop oh, wow. rate on on how yeah for it's like a market scan yeah. for how big is right the data that that strategic insight yeah yeah and where is it going right but they only look at like the top twenty or fifty oh, companies wow. right in the data broker so then that brings yeah, the question right? as to what conclusions have you gotten out of this database because then you can sell your report I for know, even more yeah well I think so right eventually. I know sort of like what spaces these companies occupy. So I think that's valuable, right? The other thing that I'm really doing is, that I think nobody else is doing is I've taken this list of data brokers, right? And I've cross-referenced it with data breaches. Okay. Ooh. Right? right? Oh, you saw that interest on Ralph's face, didn't you? <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> he was like, oh. Right? And I cross-referenced it with FTC consent orders. And I've cross-referenced it with public, sorry, highly public legal mm-hmm. cases. And I've, to some extent, cross-referenced it with right. law enforcement ties. So all of these sort of like problematic data stewardship issues, right? And what I'm essentially going to do is create a sort of data stewardship index, right? Are you going um, as far as... For data workers. Sorry, are you going as far as law enforcement requests, uh, like transparency reports from some of these big companies, for example? Yeah, I haven't got all that data yet, but that's what I want to do. And my question was around social yeah. media. Are you cross-referencing it with social media uses or companies? I haven't done that yet, but that's where I want to go. Okay, we're just literally fascinated here. I mean... I know I joked about you could sell a report, but if, if you're talking about reports that are coming out that have 20 or 30 companies and you've got, how many did you say now? 800, 1,000, something. Over, over 1,400. Yeah, 1,400. Talk about the insight that you have with this. This is, we need new wow. Names. We, need, we need new taxonomy, if, if you like, because, because what we're now talking about is we're talking about companies that thrive on selling data about data, selling metadata. And now we're talking about them. So is this meta metadata company? <laughs> <laughs> I think it is. I think it's meta meta. It's, it's like Dante's seven level seven levels of hell, right? <laughs> it's just fascinating how you yeah, can abstract right. these things and, and kind of bring them together and, and get an idea from you know quite the macro scale to quite the micro scale. I mean, I, I'm reminded of a small company I was dealing with, no more than ten people, uh, but they'd managed to secure a deal with uh, a large app that you might go to in the UK if you wanted to know about rail times, for example. And they basically took data off the back end of that app. They took data off the back end of that app, and they used it, that geolocation data that people thought they were having on their phones for finding the nearest train station. They've got their location data turned on. You know, hey, the nearest train station's 10 minutes walk away, and your train will be there in 12. You know, great stuff, right? But of course, what they didn't realize is that app was taking location data from them every five minutes. And it was being passed to this other company. Yeah. Who and it was being passed it, right? to that other company. And that other company at the yeah. back end was using it for requests. Well, let's just say, oh, we've served this mobile phone, this advertising ID, and we are McDonald's for argument's sake. We're, we're McDonald's. Other vendors are available. So in other words, your train is seven minutes away or your train is 20 minutes away and you're only seven minutes away. And here's a Starbucks yeah. between where you're walking in the train station. Oh, oh, oh. And here's a coupon. 
to get you a caramel, a grande caramel or, or macchiato. Equally, you know, we've served that yeah. phone, this advert. Tell me if they have then shared location with that fast food chain within the next 24 hours, let's say, you know, and that's right. all intelligence. And of course, the user, the individual, there's trans, there's no transparency there. And I actually spoke to the individual's concern and said, and the answer will go with me to my grave. It was because I, because, because right. I, I, I said to them, I said, you know, legal basis, you know, I'm talking about this from a Europe point of, point, of, point, of, point of view, you should be transparent, you should be telling people, you should be asking for consent and all this type of stuff. And they said, well, if we told people they don't think that we don't think they would let us. And I said, if your business model is based <laughs> right. on, if you told them you know, they wouldn't let you do it, I suggest you're in the wrong business. <laughs> But this is what scares me about these big sort of data breaking. You know, would people know? If and if people did know, would they let them? You know, and I, I don't know if you were planning on doing any research down that line of does the reality match up to the expectation? Well, now that is interesting because my theory is always you can tell people everything you do with the data, and they're never going to read it because no, there is no way of of making privacy notices truly digestible by the end user. And I have this concept in my head of a way of doing it that I've been thinking about for years that I need to get with someone and actually roll out. But I love that idea. Jeff, what do you think about cross-referencing this with their privacy notices and what they're actually do? I haven't thought about that, but I do already have in the data set a link to their privacy policy and to their opt-out policy if they have one. And and the other various, you know, I love it, and so they cross reference it to the the regions or the the privacy laws that they're subject to. So, are they a European company, Asia company? Since you're looking outside the U.S., so what laws are they subject to? And then whether or not you wouldn't be able to do this, but ah, oh, the possibilities of being able to say, well, what laws could they be subject to if there are laws that have extraterritoriality? And look how well I said that word this time. So it's, oh my gosh, I'm just literally so fascinated by what you're doing. This is, and you've only been doing it since this past summer when you started looking at privacy and taking the IAP certification. Okay, Ralph, dude, this, this man, he's, I'm bowing here. I've I've been, I've been doing this for (laughs) almost 22 years now. and It makes me wonder what I've been doing with my time, right? So, I mean, I feel like a slacker, you know. It's like when people talk about lockdown at the moment, and they're like, well, I've used my lockdown to do this and do that and do this and do that. And I'm just like, I'm just getting from day to day. And that's fine for me. But that's fine for me. I consider that an achievement, right? So, uh, you know, these people have done these wonderful things with their lockdown. I, my hat's off to them. I, I admire them all, all terribly. And hats, yeah. hats off to you, Jeff. The, 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 the last question I, I've, I've kind of got on this then really is, who's your audience? Who's taking interest in your research? Who's your market? Who are the who, who are the people who are asking the questions? Is it general public? Is it academics? Is it governments? Who's your audience, Jeff? Or is it privacy nuts like us? You know, I, I'm still figuring that out. You know, I, this is all, it's all very nascent, yeah. right? Most of this is driven by my interest right now, right? This is stuff that I want to do. Oh, there, there's uh, one. But I haven't really figured Yeah, I haven't figured it out yet. There might be an audience and data brokers paying you to not be on your list. <laughs> let's hope that. Yeah, let's hope that's, uh, that's not the way it goes, though. It right? is. It's fascinating. And we've had, I don't know what her role is with the company. I think she's general counsel with one of the bigger data brokers here in the United States, maybe the largest data broker, has come and spoken at my law school a couple of times. 
And the way that she explains their approach and how they use data, you, you find yourself agreeing with her naturally. And then it's only after, you know, a week later, you're like, wait a minute, how, how did she string me down that road and make me agree with her so easily? They have ways of how they think about this or how they present it publicly that makes you go, well, of course that makes sense. And then we all take an objective look at it. We're like, no, it doesn't make sense. It makes sense that it happened, but it doesn't make sense as there's not very many controls on it. So with that, I'm going to ask you uh, last question before we sign off. And thank you so much for coming on. This was so much fun. Is when we asked you to come on the show, did you have anything in particular that you wanted to make sure that you shared with our audience? I mean, you listen to our podcast, you know how this works. What would you want to share that we haven't covered? Oh, lots of things, probably. <laughs> so we have to have you back. <laughs> you know, one thing I wanted to bring up that's been sort of on my mind it's that relates to data brokers is, is about de-identified yeah. data, right? Oh, that's... It really is, right? I, I've been sort of thinking about this, right? I mean, if I was a cyber criminal, right, I would be gathering profile information on everybody in the right. world. Right. And the way I would do it, you know, I would be doing just like by 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 grabbing, you know, as much information as I could. But but getting de-identified information is pretty easy. Right. And we all know that it is so easy to re-identify data that I think it would be incredibly easy to grab a bunch of de-identified data and be able to re-identify 50, 80, 95% yeah. of that data and build up profiles on everybody in the world or everybody who's in my target set, right? And whether that's, you know, I'm buying that data or finding that data or stealing that data. Or right? leasing it. It's out there, right? Or leasing it, whatever that is, right? And that's why I think some of these data brokers, you know, it's just so dangerous that they've got all this data on yeah. us, right? Whether they, whether they realize it or not. Yeah. Um, you know, Axiom's got Axiom has now like eleven thousand data points on each and of us. And can you possibly right? even think about two thousand data points on yourself, much less eleven? Yeah, right. I mean, but it's not just those data points; it's then the cross-referencing yeah. of those data points. You know, we say, okay, we've anonymized that data set, we've pseudonymized that data set, but. You're, it doesn't take very many factors in cross-reference to re-identify. And it, you know, far yeah. be it from me to criticize the wonderful, beautiful, shining light that we call the GDPR here in Europe. But, you know, we've got these legal definitions of anonymized and pseudonymized data. And the reality doesn't work like that. There is always, you know, there's no, this is anonymized, no. this is pseudonymized, this is personal data. It's a sliding risk scale of a percentage chance of re-identification which has got multiple aspects to it, depending on what you've got and how you cross-reference it and how it's been anonymized or tokenized. It's kind of a, a crazy thing. Right. Right. I just can't imagine, you know, a threat actor gets you know, access to 11,000 data points, right, on you. I mean, what can they do? Oh, absolutely. It's just it, people don't understand how easy it is to re-identify data, right? I mean, if, if, Kay, if you were to walk into a bar, right, and some guy hits on you, right? And, and somebody, say somehow he manages to get your birth date right. from you, right? And and then he somehow managed to, to guess what your zip code is from some 
piece of information that you right. provide, right? Now, right? He's got your birth date. He's got a zip code. He knows that you're a female. He's got a 50% chance of being able to figure out exactly who yeah. you are from those three data points. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And I was uh, sharing with my class that I teach that it might be pretty interesting to have someone from the FBI come on and share how they actually track child uh, pedophiles online, which shows you how child pedophiles can actually track children. They just have to identify something associated with the child, a parent or an email. They track that email to maybe an ad for selling something and, and they can just go down and how quickly they can do it. It's just, it's crazy. It really is crazy. And so with that, I'm going to bring us to a close today. And thank you so very much for coming on. I had no idea how very fascinating this would be, but I had a feeling. So thank you uh, for joining us. And thank you listeners for tuning into this episode of Serious Privacy. If you like our series, please do tell your friends and colleagues about us. Rate and review our episodes in your favorite podcast app, as I say, only if you really like us. And should you have any questions or suggestions, and especially if you'd like to be a guest, please reach out to us via SeriousPrivacy at TrustArc.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at Podcast Privacy. You can find me at Heart of Privacy. You can find Ralph at IGR O'Brien. Or Find Paul. Paul wasn't able to join us uh, this episode, but you can find him at EuroPaulB. We'll also make sure that we have Jeff's information for you. And we can't thank you enough for tuning in. We're glad you enjoy us. And Paul always says bye for now. But as I say, that's not for me. Bye, y'all. That was Serious Privacy. So, Kay, did you hear that the TrustArc Trust Center is revolutionizing the way businesses manage trust? I did! And with the Trust Center, achieving customer trust is no longer a months-long process. It can be just days. Yeah. Have you been in a situation where a customer wanted information and you need to scramble to find everything? Just imagine all of that was at hand in one central hub. With info on privacy, legal, security, compliance, system availability. Yeah, you can lower your legal, regulatory, and reputational risk with instant updates and speed up your sales cycle with private and public document sharing. Trust Center solves the problem of red tape and dependencies, ensuring your trust and safety information is accurate, compliant, and available. And you know the best part? You'll save time and cost. How often have you gone to multiple departments and it's taken weeks so you can remove bottlenecks and effortlessly streamline your efforts? Trust Center, trust becomes your key differentiator in today's digital economy. Experienced enhanced customer trust, operational speed, and efficiency while enjoying comprehensive coverage for diverse stakeholders. So why wait? Start streamlining trust management with TrustArc's Trust Center. Visit TrustArc.com slash more dash trust. That is TrustArc.com slash more dash trust. There's a lot of trust in that. A lot of trust.